Well, hey church, my name's Rowan. I'm one of the pastors here at EV. And it's a great privilege to look at God's word together. So why don't we pray that God would help us to see his word? Let's pray. Lord, as we've just heard your word read, as we think through what it means for us, we ask that you'd help us by your spirit to see what you want us to see, that you'd help us to see into our human hearts and to recognize how great you are and your solution to the problems of the world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've only got to live a few days to work out there's something wrong with this world. Our hospitals, they're overflowing. Our courts are booked up. Our cars are all insured. The doors to our houses are locked. Well, whenever we can leave the house, they are. I think they are. <laughs> we have applications to, to keep our passwords safe and websites to tell us where it's safe to swim and where it's safe to shop and when we can leave our houses. The fact that there's something wrong with this world, it's almost undisputed. The question is, what? What's caused this world to be so broken? In 2019, the UN declared a, a decade of action to fix the world's problems. They put forward 17 solutions to fix what's wrong, and here's some of them. Number one, end poverty. Number two was end hunger. Number three, achieve health and well-being. Number four, provide quality education. Number five, achieve gender equality. Number 10 on their list was reduce inequality. Number 16, promote peace, justice, and strong institutions. There's another 10 solutions, you can look them up later. But the interesting thing is that comparatively to the rest of the world, we as a society have almost all these things. But is the world really any better? As we think about what's wrong with the world and where the solution lies, I wanna put it to you that it's worth listening to the one who claims he made the world. In the passage Lydia just read for us, we hear Jesus' take on what's wrong with the world. And not only that, we get to see the solution. Here is the first hint to the solution of the world's problem. And the first hint is that it's not religion. The section Liddy read starts out with possibly the most religious people in all of human history. Come with me, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who'd come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they've washed. And there are many other customs they've received and keep, like the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles and uh, dining and couches. The Pharisees and the scribes, you see, they were the religious gurus. They had rules for everything. If you touched a dead animal or human being, or if you had an infectious disease like boils or rashes or sores, if you came into contact with mildew on, on your clothes or something in your house or on yourself, if you had any bodily discharge or you ate meat from an animal that was designated unclean, you were considered ritually impure, defiled, stained, unclean. And that meant you couldn't enter the temple and therefore you couldn't worship God with the community. Now, to most of us, these boundaries sound irrelevant, menial and finicky. What is with all this stuff, right? But if you think about it, they're not as odd as they sound. Over the centuries, people have fasted from food during sessions of prayer. Why? Well, to help them develop a spiritual hunger from God. Others from all kinds of faith have dropped on their knees to pray. I mean, it's not the most comfortable position to speak to God in, but it's seen as an aid for developing a spiritual humility. So the washings and efforts to stay clean from dirt and disease, they were used by religious people in Jesus' day as a kind of visual aid that enabled them to, to recognize that they were spiritually 
and morally unclean. They knew they couldn't enter into the presence of God unless there was some kind of spiritual purification. So imagine for a moment you're about to go and meet with someone special, someone who's particularly important to you, whether that be a first date or a fifth date or a job interview or a wedding. Uh, what do you do? Well, you make sure you're clean. You make sure you've had a shower, your clothes are clean, you've brushed your teeth, you've blow dried your hair. Uh, maybe that's just for the girls, maybe not. <laughs> what are we doing? We're getting rid of the uncleanliness. We don't want to smell bad. We don't even want a stain or a wrinkle on us. And there's something good about that. If that's not you, maybe it's something you want to think through. But the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament had the same idea behind them. That spiritually, morally, unless you're clean, you can't be in the presence of a perfect and holy God. I mean, who would just get their clothes on and whatever they're wearing in their pajamas and go up to the queen? Not many. Uh, who would go for a job interview in their pajamas? Not many. Who would come before God with their lives not in right order? It was an illustration for Israel to think through how they were to approach God. But the problem with these Pharisees was they took these rituals and embellished them. They, they changed them for their own club. See, all these rules, they were actually meant for the priests, not all of Israel. They're meant for the leaders of Israel. They're meant to be a symbol for the rest of Israel who'd watch the priest cleanse himself before entering the temple to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. But these Pharisees wanting to show their superior moral standing before everyone else would take the word of God and mold it and embellish it, kind of to suit themselves, they'd make up new club rules and make themselves look good and enforce them on everyone else. They were more concerned with their outward appearance of obeying the law than with actually listening to God and seeing what they were like before him. Friends, this is religion at its core, religiosity. And Jesus hates religion. If you were to look at them from the outside, they looked good. These guys went above and beyond, squeaky clean. If the way God viewed people is based on outward appearance, these guys were it. They were the yardstick to godliness. But not everything as it appears. Have a look with me at, at um, verse 6. Mark chapter 7, verse 6. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands, abandoning the command of God. You hold on to human tradition. Well, here's the punchline. Israel's religious leaders have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. While their exterior looks squeaky clean, their hearts are rotten to the core. And that's the thing with religion, or for that matter, any other attempt to solve the problems of the world that focuses on external issues, right? They never fix the core. See, behind every act of evil in the world is a person who commits that evil. Every expression of greed, every inequality, every war, every injustice, every failure of institutions, they all come back to people, people like you and me. People they may not be especially bad people when we look at them on the outside. They may even look commendable on the outside. We might look commendable on the outside. But underneath, every person is broken. All of us, we're, we're selfish. We're self-centered. We, we, we think we know what's best. We act like mini gods of, of our own lives, determining uh, what we want to do. 
And while humanity struts its stuff on the world stage, boldly declaring, we can fix the problems of the world. We never look at the real problem. We never look at you and me, at what we are like. These religious leaders in Jesus' time, they went around proposing and imposing ways that everyone else had to comply with, but they never looked at their hearts. They never looked at themselves. They never saw the real problem wasn't with their outward appearance. The real problem was with an inward reality. Jesus calls the crowd to himself in his next part and tells a parable. Mark 7, verse 14, he says this. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from the outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now this, it's not what you normally call a parable. Uh, We'd call it a proverb or a saying, but in verse 17, it's called a parable, probably because it does what parables do best. It challenges and confronts those who hear it. It begs us to apply to our own heart and mind what Jesus is saying. Hear me, says Jesus, and understand this. If you don't get this, you won't get me and why I've come. If you want to be clean in God's sight, if you want to be acceptable before him, It's not the external appearance that matters. It's not the things on the outside. Because nothing from outside can make you clean or unclean, but only that which comes out of a person. What Jesus is saying is that the source of uncleanliness, what is wrong with the world, our defilement before God comes from within. It's within you and me. It is you and me. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. Take, for example, an apple. Now, I've got an apple here for us today. That's one I prepared earlier. This looks like a great apple. It feels like a great apple. It's got that crisp sound. It's even got a little sticker on it. It says Royal Gala, it's a special New Zealand apple. It's firm, it smells good. To all intents and purposes, this apple looks like a good apple. But if we were to cut it open, say we got a knife, and right here we were to slice it in half, Ah, we see that on the inside, it's rotten, it's spoiled, it's festy. I don't want to eat this apple. The outward appearance, look at it, it looked crisp and nice and neat. But inwardly, it's got a significant problem. It's rotten to the core. See, Jesus is trying to help us to understand that outward appearance will never make us right with God. That's what's wrong with the world. And it's what's wrong with, the, with you and I is that our inner problem, our hearts rebel against God. We can put on a good exterior. We can pretend we've got it all together. We can go through all sorts of religious ritual or even just the rituals the world says we ought to do to be a good person. And you know what? The secular world is just as religious. It's got its own set of rules too. Be politically correct. Treat people equally. Fight for the little guy. Support causes that look like they're doing good. Recycle. Don't use glad wrap. Buy an electric vehicle. Eat healthy food. Practice mindfulness. Learn something new and everything will be better. Right? But none of these gets to the core of who I am and who you are. People are hell-bent on making ourselves kings, on making up our own rules rather than the God who made us and listening to him. We make ourselves mini gods responsible only to ourselves and our idea of what's right and wrong. Jesus is strong here. 
He calls these religious leaders that look clean on the outside but are rotten on the inside hypocrites. Hypocrites. To the extent that we think that putting on a good front is going to make us more acceptable to God. God's looking at me and you today and saying, hypocrite. Nothing external can make you right with God. Nothing external will fix the problems of the world. Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And thus he declared all foods clean. There's no hope of ever being acceptable to God. No hope of being one of God's people without understanding this great truth. Jesus says to the disciples here, don't you get it? Don't you see? He says to us, don't you get it? Don't you see the source of our uncleanliness is our own hearts? Not the cleanliness of our hands or the food we eat or the things we do. They don't defile us in terms of these rituals. They don't enter into our hearts. They enter into our stomachs and then get expelled, right? The food we eat might have been offered to idols, might have been prepared in hatred, may have even been prayed over by the devil. But Jesus says they're only ever pre-sewerage material. That's it. Pre-sewerage. They can't defile us. So many religious traditions are about fasting or feasting, what we eat and drink, what you wear, the beards you have, the robes you put on, how you wash. All the religions of the world are full of regulations for food and drink, what you do with pork, or coffee, no meat on Fridays, a month of fasting, no meat at all, only eat kosher food, halal meat, right? All of them have a hope of somehow getting right with God or providing a better life because of what or how or when you eat. People place moral value and virtue on, on how you eat or, or, or how you refrain from eating. You notice today, dieting is sold in moral terms. You know, you feel guilty if you, if you eat too much. Chocolate is being naughty. It's not naughty or good. Chocolate has no moral value one way or another. Right, the saying, cleanliness is next to godliness, is a great saying for small boys who need to wash, right? But it's not true in that regard. Cleanliness is a good thing. It's good for health and hygiene and for others around us. You know, wearing deodorant is a good thing. But it's not a spiritual issue. It was always just an analogy for God's people to recognize they had to be right to be clean before him. These in the Old Testament were, were a teaching aid prepping us and the world for the arrival of Jesus. And now that Jesus is here, what he's saying is that nothing outside us can enter in to defile us. Smoking, for instance, it's a great tragedy to health. It costs lots. It's smelly. And because of passive smoking, it's unsociable. It can cause issues to others, but it doesn't defile you. It's a chemical addiction, not a moral or spiritual failure. If you're not addicted to smoking, be thankful. If you are, then I want to say seek help, be in control. That's what the scriptures point us to. But only for the sake of health and for loving others, not because it's a spiritual matter. It has nothing to do with defilement, what you eat or what you wear. That's religion and religiosity. Look, look at verse 20, just to be clear. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, 
slander, pride and foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a person. Now you read that list and you go, oh, (laughs) that's me. There's things here that, that, that show my heart, that what I am like. And Jesus is saying, these are the things that come from within me. Satan didn't make me do it. No one else made me do it. I'm responsible for my actions. It's me. It's Rowan. It's you and your heart that makes you unacceptable for God. See, these are the things that corrupt and defile us. These are the reality that the symbolic cleansing always pointed forward to. They're the very corruption of the human soul and it makes us unsuitable for God's company. And they come not from the outside, but from within. Now, they don't come from what we eat, from eating with dirty hands or eating on the wrong day of the week or failure to keep some religious festival or not fasting for a certain amount of time. They come from within our own hearts, our own mind, our own person. No one forces you or me to do these things. Every time we choose. The Hare Krishnas have a saying, you are what you eat. And they pushed vegetarianism as as a morally superior and spiritual way to eat. But do you know what? Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian toward the end of his life. He thought it would bring spiritual regeneration. That didn't seem to do him much good. The quintessential sinner of the 20th century was a vegetarian. Friends, there's no moral value in vegetarianism. Hitler was also opposed to smoking. He quit smoking. In the early 1940s, he tried to abolish smoking totally from Germany. The anti-smoking vegetarian was the epitome of moral corruption and evil of the 20th century. Friends, you are not what you eat, but you are what you do. We often try to make a distinction between the corrupt things we do and my own corruption. We say, oh, I did that thing, but I'm, I'm not bad. But we can't do that. The things that we do are a true expression of us. They are the true you and me, not the one you want us to think you are nor are they the, the one you want to think yourself is. <laughs> For me, I remember one time when Sarah was at the airport uh, and she was um, about to catch a plane with our kids. And what had happened was um, she sent me this text saying some goons had just thrown a teddy bear at my coffee and it spilt everywhere. And I'm, I'm at home thinking she's got the kids. She's trying to take them on a plane. I was really angry. And my first response and what I replied in the first thing that came up in the text was what you should do is pull these kids teddy bear head off, pour your coffee down its neck and throw it back at them. (laughs) Seriously, that's what I thought. That's what came from within. Why? Because I'm not perfect. Because really naturally, my my natural heart is one that is turned against God. I, I stand before you here today looking clean and shaven in a nice shirt, looking like I've got life reasonably together. But don't believe the lie. The things that pop into my head, the the anger, the frustration. um, If you could see what goes through my mind and my desires and motivations, then you'd be appalled. My guess is you're the same too. Make no mistake. Our uncleanliness, our ugliness is not in our outward appearance. It flows from our hearts and shows itself in our actions. Your heart and my heart are exactly the same. We are in desperate need of help. So don't feel the need to to lie about it. You don't need to pretend to be all clean on the outside, to put on a fake skin, to show you've got everything together. When we really know the reality, don't pretend. Our hearts are rotten to the core, naturally. There's no 
point setting up regulations. Don't do this, blah, blah, blah. Don't do that. Make sure you do this. If we had all the rules and regulations from every religion on the planet, it still would not be enough. Probably just want to break them all the more. None of them address the issue of the brokenness of our hearts. Paul in in Colossians 2 says this. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what's destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. See, Paul's saying they don't matter. These external things don't matter. It's what's internal that matters. I could fast every day for the next week. The only way it's going to get me closer to God is if I keep fasting day after day, week after week, month after month. Then I'll meet God face to face because I'll be dead. (laughs) I won't meet him as any more holier person or a more righteous person, just a skinny person. Now, what you and I need is forgiveness. Forgiveness for the way our hearts are, for the way we are. We need a heart transplant, a new heart. And you know, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel is shown a picture of the human condition. It's, It's a valley of dried up bones. All these people like an army, but just dried up bones. And it's a picture of Israel, a picture of humanity. While we look okay on the outside, we're all dead on the inside. And we know that because every single one of us dies. Well, in this vision, God says to Ezekiel that these dry bones will hear the word of the Lord. Look what he says. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you. And you will live. I will put tendons on you, make your flesh grow on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, in this vision, all the bones start rattling and God breathes his spirit into them. And these people come back to life. And he says in Ezekiel 36, 24, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God and I will save you from all your uncleanness. Friends, God was promising to Israel in the Old Testament that he would fix our problem. He would give us new hearts and that through his action, we could be called truly clean, clean before God. What they were looking forward to in Ezekiel, we now have in Jesus. When he declares all things clean, he's saying, do you recognize who is here? The apostle John writes, knowing that we will still sin, but pointing us to the answer after Jesus' death and resurrection. He says this. I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. See, before Jesus' return, none of us have completely new hearts. But if you do trust in Jesus, then you have God's spirit in you, helping you to see who Jesus is. That he's the one with the perfect heart. He's the one who's come and died in our place. The sacrifice of atonement, as John calls him. He's the one who offered us forgiveness. 
His righteousness. It's like he came and gave us a core transplant. He cut out our dodgy kind of rotten cause. He, he got rid of this section and gave us new hearts. Hearts that want to obey him. Not perfectly yet until Jesus returns and everything is made complete. But when he died on the cross, he offered his life for ours to pay the penalty for our evil, self-centered mutiny. Where we removed the, the, the position of God and placed ourselves at the center. That's what Jesus died for. And he has now offered us new hearts, hearts that can try to obey him. And he's offered us forgiveness for where we cannot. And when he returns, he's offered us fully new hearts when there'll be no more evil, no more crying or mourning or pain when the old order of things is done away with. Friends, what a great privilege it is to know the solution to what's wrong with the world. It's to stop pretending we can have it all sorted on the outside, that we can deal with it ourselves and recognize we need to deal with our own hearts. The solution is to come to Jesus, to trust God the Son and his death in my place, to place him as our King and our God and live for him. We won't do it perfectly, not, not now. But if we trust him, we have an advocate with God the Father, God the Son, who steps in and says, I died in their place. That sin is forgiven. If we trust in his death and resurrection, Jesus says, they are mine. Friends, there's no better news in the entire world than to know that we can be right with God. That despite my failings and my flaws, Jesus loves me and died for me. Fixing the problems of the world, it means fixing you and me. And the only way we can do that is to come to Jesus. So stop pretending. I need to stop pretending. And and so do you. Stop putting on an outward show and recognize that the only good apple was Jesus. And he was cut for us at the cross so we could be forgiven. So today, won't you come and trust him? Won't you recognize he is the king over all? He is the solution to the world's problems. And when he returns, all things will be put right. And in the meantime, he tells us how to respond and gives us his spirit to help us. Stop pretending and start trusting. Keep trusting. Share with one another how you fail and and come to God and confess your sin. Walk alongside one another. Or today, if, if you don't yet trust Jesus, come to him. He's offering you life forever and trust him. Why don't we pray that God would help us to do exactly that? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that Jesus has stepped into the world and offered his life for ours. We confess that we have tried to be mini gods. We've tried to rule our lives our own way. We've tried to fix the problems of the world without you as if we don't need you. We've set up our own rules. Lord, thank you for your word that speaks into our lives and shows us the reality of the world's problems lies within us. Please forgive us and cleanse us from our sin Help us to keep trusting Jesus, the one who has died in our place and live for him. Help us as a church to be people who can be real with one another, not pretending, not putting on the facade, but to be honest about how we're going, to share our lives with one another, to be people who are sinners, beggars at the foot of the cross, thankful that Jesus died in our place as our only hope. Make us a people whose trust is in Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. 
We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.